Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. This Sunday, today, kind of wraps up our four-week series um, exploring what fasting means. Uh, Over the last three weeks, we've said that fasting is a practice. It's a spiritual habit, a spiritual discipline. And so far, we've discovered three things that um, fasting does for us or ways that we can engage in fasting. One is to offer ourselves to Jesus. In fasting, we open ourselves um, in the hope that we can draw closer to God. A second thing is to draw is to grow more in holiness that is strengthening maturing growing in our faith as well through fasting and then last week Daniel pastor Daniel mentioned that fasting helps to amplify our prayers prayer and fasting often go together in the Bible and also in our lives our spiritual lives as well and fasting and prayer to go together to help each other, strengthen each other, strengthen our prayer life. And prayer helps strengthen our fasting life as well. So kind of to sum up, so far, our first three uh, weeks learning about fasting explores the power of fasting for our personal transformation and our relationship with God. Um, to be honest with you, I have not been a particularly good faster. Um, I, I haven't tried it a whole lot, and the times that I have, I've struggled to make sense of it or to do it well, I think. I was sharing this with uh, our life group a couple weeks ago and discovered that other people have some issues or complications in their fasting life. Um, one, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things that was shared was that Um, fasting probably isn't good for that family because people get hangry. Uh, Losing uh, a meal can have physiological effects on you and also kind of affect your emotional state. And it's interesting that that particular um, issue was shared by the spouse of someone, not someone actually confessing that. Um, Others talked about the issue of motives. Are we fasting to get something back from God? Um, and if so, is that a pure enough motive for us to fast? And the concern is, are we being hypocritical when we are trying to fast that way? So as we talked and shared more, we discovered there were some issues that are going on. I don't know if you share any of those particular issues in your uh, attempts at fasting or not. Uh, but here in this fourth and final week, talking about fasting, um, we'll discover, hopefully, in our scripture passage, Maybe something will help us address some of these weaknesses or issues that we have with fasting. Um, And maybe it'll help improve our fasting lives as well. So let's give it a go, shall we? Uh, Before we read the scripture, I need to give you a little bit of historical background, the context that is so important. In uh, 587 before Christ, 587 BC, the Babylonian Empire attacked Judah, the country of Judah, and destroyed the capital city of Jerusalem. And when they were finished with that, they took a large number of the leading religious and political leaders back to Babylon with them. They were exiled basically from their homeland. 
Um, about 48 years later or so, the Persians conquered the Babylonians and they let all the Jews that were held in exile go back home. So as these Jews were returning back to their home around Jerusalem and the areas around there, um, they were trying to rebuild their lives, try to get their, their lives together and rebuild the actual cities and towns that the Babylonians had destroyed. So our passage for today comes from the prophet Isaiah. And prophet Isaiah was written during this time of resettlement, the time when these exiled Jews were trying to reestablish their lives and their livelihoods and their religious practices as well. So I would like us to read together, or I'll read for us, it'd be on the slides as well, uh, Isaiah 58, and we'll start with verses one through three. Shout. A full-throated shout, hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And they love having me on their side but they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, apparently there's something wrong <laughs> with this new settlement, uh, this new settled land, despite the outward appearance of being law-abiding, God-fearing, uh, practicing Jews, uh, these people are worshiping and studying, they're seeking God's will and they're fasting but their fasting wasn't yielding the results that they had hoped for, apparently. Namely, they were looking for God's presence and God's actions on their behalf, but they didn't sense anything. So then God responds to their complaint. And this is verses uh, three, four, and five. God says, well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast that I'm after? A day to show off your humility? To put on a pious, long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting? A fast day that I, God, would like? God lets them have it through the prophet Isaiah. And apparently, what we read here, being hangry was a thing back in the sixth century, right? They're fasting, but they're bickering and fighting with each other. And apparently also, this, there was some kind of a social stratification that was going on. There were some of the leaders, the elite, the religious and political leaders, and then there were the common, more common people that had been left behind when the Babylonians took all the leaders into exile in Babylon. And so these leaders, and now that they've come back, they were abusing and oppressing the people who had been left behind and using them as their common workers. So Isaiah calls them out for their worship without public ethics, and in particularly economic kinds of ethics. Basically what he's saying is that worship that doesn't take into account human economic practice is bad worship. So then, what does proper fasting look like? Well, the prophet will continue, 
And for us to explore what that looks like, I'm going to ask for us to cooperate together and in solidarity with each other and with the prophet Isaiah, we're going to read together some of the passages. This may not work because I had to guess at where people would be sitting today and I can see that I've kind of misguessed in some places. However, part of the scriptures that I want us to read together are going to be on slips of paper that are in the seat back pockets um, in your seats. I place them on the seats that are closest to the, in, to the aisles. So if you would look around and grab, look in the back of those, the things that are in the seat back, packet, seat back pockets, there'll be maybe three or four different slips of paper. And if you find those, could you just distribute those to someone sitting around you so that all of those pieces of paper get distributed? And maybe uh, Noah, do you mind checking behind you, the row behind you? And if there's any empty rows, check on those. They're being the seats that are closest to the aisle. And not every one of those seats has pieces of paper, but some of them do. You have some extras? Okay, hand, hand out. Did anybody not have a piece of paper? Let's go ahead. If, if everybody has one and we still have papers left over, maybe some of us can take two. Is that okay? Okay, do we have everything distributed? Everybody got one? Okay, there's numbers. One. So I'm going to read a portion of, uh, of the scripture passage, and then I will call out the number. When you hear your number called, just read what's on your paper in a loud, clear voice. And there'll be several of us that have that same passage, so we can read together in unison. Does that make sense? Do we have any confusion or questions? Okay, let's try this and see what happens, all right? So, what does proper fasting look like then? Here's what God says through Isaiah the prophet. This is the kind of fast day that I'm after. Number one. Number two. <laughs> okay. Number three. Together now. And number four. Thank you. Good job. Okay. We've got another set of those we'll get to a little bit later. And so that we've warmed up, warmed up and we're good to go. So let's take a look at this again. Listen, did you hear what, what, was, what was said? Break the chains of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, cancel debts. I don't know about you, but that kind of takes me by surprise. I'm expecting God to give ex uh, descriptions or directions on how to fast. And here he's talking about issues of social justice and economics. It, Isaiah basically has shifted the nature of fasting from an internal kind of discipline to the external, the way we behave and act. So the power of fasting lies not just in personal transformation, but also in social transformation. Now, where does Isaiah get this? Where's this coming from? Well, we could say God, of course. Okay, where does God get it from? Where's this coming from? On what basis can we say that fasting, which is usually an individual spiritual practice, how can it be defined as some kind of socioeconomic transformation? Well, as any Sunday school child knows, whenever you get asked a question in church, the answer has to be Jesus. Yes, very good. So back in, in Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, or he talks about three core practices for the Jews of his day. They were prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, or giving to the poor. 
<clears throat> in each of these cases, as Jesus discusses them, he says, <clears throat> when you pray, when you fast, when you give, he doesn't say if, he says when. And then he goes on to explain what he wants his disciples to do. So he's assuming that his disciples are going to be praying, fasting, and giving to the poor. And he expects them to continue doing that, which is why he teaches them about those three core values, just as Isaiah did 600 years before. In the biblical worldview, neighborly actions go hand in hand with your personal piety. Now, the first four items that we just read about are mentioned as a proper fast, and they all relate to economic burdens, burdens that are in particular paralyzing debt or abuse of workers. Freeing these people by canceling their debt or improving their working conditions will require a real loss on the part of the lenders and the leaders. They will have to go without the payment they expected. They'll have to sacrifice something they normally would have, which is fasting, isn't it? See what Isaiah did there? We're giving up food when we fast, but socially we're giving up what we think we should get back as far as a debt that is owed to us or whatever. So beginning in verse seven now, we get more specifics about what this neighborly fast is like. So are you ready with your pieces of paper? And here's what God says to the prophet Isaiah. What I'm interested in seeing you do is, number five. Number six. Number seven. And number eight. Great, thank you all. So sharing food, sharing houses, sharing clothing, they all identify some basic elementary resources that are necessary for our lives, right? The gift of the community is to share these resources with everyone. Now, requirement number eight, the being available to your own families. The, the, the passage we've been reading today comes from the message, which is a paraphrase more so than a translation. And that might be one place, verse eight, or the number eight, might be one place where it's not a real good translation, being available to your own families. Although it's true that giving time to your family uh, might require sacrificing something else that you wanna do, and it might qualify as a fast that way. But from the Hebrew, the more likely meaning has to do with reflecting the context of these preceding groups of people, the hungry, the homeless, and the naked. That is, these people are the ones who you should consider as part of your family, and therefore they should be treated as such. So let's go on. I'll read for us uh, verses six through nine. Again, the, the Isaiah, the prophet continues, do this, that is all these things, inviting the poor into your homes, feeding them, clothing them. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. So the, the God of Isaiah is not necessarily a God who likes to be flattered with the passive routine of worship. The God of glory is the one that's out working in the neighborhood and God wants all worshipers to do the same. 
And the result will be what Isaiah's audience had been seeking in their misguided fasting in the first place, and that is God's radiant presence with them. That is promised now if they do these other acts. Let's wrap up the rest of this passage, verses 9 through 12. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins, if you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, then your lives will shine in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the, in the emptiest of places, firm muscles and strong bones, You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the rubble of past lives to build anew, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix things, anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. So these concluding verses then kind of wrap up. They envision a social practice that's built on genuine sharing of social power and social goods. And the further benefits to this kind of fasting is an offer of safe leadership by God and ample water in an arid climate. And these two ideas, of course, then recall the leadership and the provision of God during their journeys in the wilderness after they escaped from slavery in Egypt, the journeys under Moses and their exodus. And the final promise, that is, if, the people engage in these social justice practices that's laid out by Isaiah. It's the hope that they had all during the time that they were in exile in Babylon to return to their homeland, to rebuild their homes, restore their lives, and create a livable community again. So through this whole thing, fasting itself is not in question, but the manner and the spirit in which you go about your fasting, that's what's important, along with compatible behavior. An acceptable fast to God means refraining from taking economic advantage of others and instead offering assistance that's necessary for health and dignity of other people. Isaiah redefines the spiritual practice of fasting to include public action and social justice. Uh, several hundred years later, St. Augustine, one of the most important theologians and early Christian scholars in Christian history, he wrote a commentary on Isaiah. And as he's commenting on this chapter 58, he wrote, fasting disciplines you, but it does not refresh the other. Do you wish your prayers to reach God? Give it two wings, fasting and almsgiving. Again, tying together, fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. So I guess for us today, we wanna to ask ourselves the question, what does this message from Isaiah translate? How does it translate to our time and our place? Well, first of all, let's remind ourselves or get a handle on the need. Here's some statistics about poverty in the world. About 10% of the global population lives in what's called extreme poverty. That's 700 million people eking out their existence on less than $2 a day. And here in America, the extreme poverty level is even higher than that world average. It's at 11.6% nearly 40 million people here in the United States. The highest poverty rate is among Native Americans and the black community. 
And we can probably figure out why from our history with those folks as well, how that could be. And at the same time, the average family of four people in America, we throw away $1,500 worth of food in a year. That's 40% of the food in America that gets thrown out. At the beginning of last year, it was estimated that there were 10 people in the world, 10 billionaires. They possessed six times as much wealth as the poorest 3 billion people on earth. And in the United States, the richest 10% of households own more than 70% of our country's assets. So we have a feeling now for income inequality, uh, poverty, hunger in the world. And once we have some idea of the need for this economic justice, now we can turn to the actual practice of fasting with the poor. And generally speaking, fasting is a way to love God and love our neighbor at the same time. But specifically, let's talk about maybe three things that our fasting with the poor uh, can do or the way we can do it. The first is that we can share what we have. Um, from the earliest centuries of the Christian movement, um, people recognized, and one of the leaders was a church father from fourth century in Cappadocia, which is modern day Turkey. His name is St. Gregory of Nyssa. He wrote, give to the hungry what you deny your own appetite. And this was common practice and advice amongst in the early church. What we, we, what we give up in money spent on food can be given away to the poor and the hungry as well. What we spend in time, or we would have spent in time shopping, preparing and eating the food, we can give that time to the poor and the hungry as well. It can be spent in service of the poor. Now, one way that, one particular way that might look here for us is through the food bank of Larimer County. And our friend Zach Hummel is going to join me up here and he's gonna tell us a little bit about what the food bank of Larimer County does and maybe how we can participate. So Zach, do you mind coming up? I got a few questions for you. First of all, uh, tell us a little bit about what your role is at the food bank. Yeah, yeah good morning. My name is Zach, as Rick said. Uh, I've been at the food bank for Larimer County for about two years now. And what I do there is I'm the programs manager. Um, so I oversee the variety of programs that we offer um, at the food bank. So. Lots of folks know that the food bank offers food. Um, we have a variety of other programs that we do, including um, nutrition education. Uh, we have uh, someone who's a registered dietitian who goes around and teaches classes to folks to help them kind of better um, have a more healthy relationship with the food that they're eating. We have different government programs that we run for um, senior nutrition and for child nutrition. And the other thing that I do is I work with all of our agency partners. Um, so at the food bank, we ourselves have um, food shares where folks can come and get food. Um, we also partner with about 100, 110 other locations within our county, um, whether that be food pantries, whether it's kitchens, um, other snack programs that's providing food. Um, we kind of stretch anywhere from uh, let's say Berthoud up to Wellington, Estes Park, Red Feather Lakes. Um, we have partners in all those locations to kind of help us uh, distribute the food that we acquire. 
Okay, and so you're a food bank. Where, where do you get the food from that you distribute? And then how much of that, um, how much food do you deal with? How much do you give away? Sure. Yeah, I, I appreciated your statistic about food waste. I think that's something that often goes unnoticed in our world because we go to the grocery store, show up, there's always food there, there's always abundance. Um, asking the question though, what happens when there's uh, produce that maybe doesn't look, produce that's grown that maybe isn't the correct size to be sold or um, maybe a cucumber that's like a little bit curved and it's not straight, so therefore they can't sell it. Um, a lot of the things that we get, we get from our local grocery stores. Um, so at the food bank, we have about six or seven drivers who are on the roads every day um, picking up from local grocery stores the food that they, um, while they can't sell it or they don't want to sell it or they have excess of, uh, they're willing to donate to us uh, things that's good to eat. Um, and so that's one part. The other part is we're a part of a broader network of Feeding America. Um, Feeding America has a system by which their food banks can, um, they, they connect larger organizations, think um, like Kraft or Mondelez or other large food companies um, who are producing large quantities of food that sometimes they have food that's getting to be like short date on the Best Buy date or something like that. Um, we get food from them. Um, we also get it from local food drives, things like that. Um, in our county last year, we did about 9 million pounds of food that was distributed. Um, the vast majority of that is donated product that we get. Um, sometimes we will purchase product to then distribute to some of our larger agencies. Um, so that way they don't have to, so that way they can source it from us and not have to, you know, if they need peanut butter for their clients, they don't have to go to Sam's Club and just clear the uh, entire shelf of peanut butter. Uh, they can source it through us, but the vast majority of things that we're sourcing uh, is donated product, which kind of helps fill that gap of not only feeding our neighbors, but also preventing the food waste that's kind of becoming an epidemic in our, uh, in our country. So in the two years that you've been there, t tell us what you've learned about the need in Larimer County or in the surrounding areas here around us. Yeah, so uh, the numbers that Rick gave, we, in Larimer County, we're around 9% um, of folks who are experiencing food insecurity. Uh, it's also a unique, we're kind of in a unique space, right? Because Larimer County, all, while it has um, Loveland and Fort Collins, it also kind of stretches into the foothills, into the mountains. And there's lots of communities there as well who kind of um, go maybe unnoticed or underrepresented. Um, one of the things I would say about that I've been learning about food insecurity is that it's often, often folks who are coming to our food shares or in need of food, um, some of them will, like, like the reason they come is because they, they need food and like that's their number one priority. But for many of the folks in our community, food is, the, is, is a piece that can kind of help them um, put their money somewhere else. Um, so for folks who are living in, let's say, like Red Feather Lakes or kind of out in some of the canyons, um, the, the benefit of having the food bank and being able to acquire the, the food that we receive um, allows them to then maybe put more money towards their gas because they have to drive an hour to come into town because maybe they have to run errands, things like that. Um, so food insecurity in our community often looks like, um, or, or rather filling, filling the gap of food insecurity really 
allows people to kind of be able to get back on their feet um, and reestablish themselves and be able to put some of their money towards other places um, when things like, you know, when everything else in our economy also continues to rise, uh, being able to meet the need of, of food is, is something that we pride ourselves in. Okay, so then as far as what we're, how we're concerned, uh, how can people here at Emmaus Road um, help you or support what the food bank is doing? Yeah, um, kind of two ways. The first one I would say uh, is the, the sharing piece, whether that be um, by gifts of finance, by uh, running a food drive, by giving of your time to volunteer, uh, something that we're always looking for and that many of our partners are always looking for um, are volunteers to help at their distribution days. Um, so that's probably the easy way. Um, the other more underlying thing that I tell folks is the importance of, of advocating for this, um, talking about making it more common knowledge, the amount of food waste that goes on in our, um, in our country. Uh, if that requires things like calling representatives in our state, trying to figure out how we can get more funding and try and bridge that gap of both supporting, you know, supporting our local farmers who are at the farmer's market and have, are growing a lot of produce and aren't able to sell it. Um, we have a, as an aside, we have a, a recent grant that's come through from the state that's allowed us to purchase some of that product from our local farmers. So that way it's not only um, revitalizing our, um, our growers in our community, it's also allowing uh, folks in our community to be fed, so. Okay, all right, and my last question is maybe helping me preach the sermon here. How has what you've learned um, at the food bank affected how you understand fasting? Yeah, this has been uh, a helpful series for myself because I think when I, when I go to work, if, I, if I'm fasting that day, it helps me um, to empathize a lot better with, my, with our neighbors and our clients who are coming in for food. Um, something that I've been learning and have been thinking about at, that time, at this time when I'm fasting is like, sometimes it can be difficult to um, empathize with people who are in marginalized groups um, if I'm not living in a certain location or uh, if I don't have a disability or if my skin doesn't look a certain color, like it's difficult to actually empathize with someone. Um, but fasting is one of the easiest ways uh, to kind of come into communion with people who are also um, feeling hungry. It only takes, you know, a couple hours before we start feeling hungry and start feeling uh, maybe, you know, if you're at work and you're fasting or if you're doing something, like sometimes that's like your mind is just occupied by that. Like the only thing you can think of is food. Um, and it's a helpful reminder for me, for our clients and our neighbors who are coming in, like that's, sometimes that's the daily for them. Um, and to be able to kind of help fill that gap is, uh, I think it's a, a, a special asset that we have in our community, um, being able to work at the food bank, so. Okay, thanks. Thanks for sharing, Zach. Yeah. And thanks for your work in our community too. <laughs> Maybe if you have other questions, Zach can answer your questions after the service because he can tell you who all those agencies are 
Um, we know that in Loveland, the community kitchen um, that serves meals on a daily basis is one of the agencies through which the food bank works. So there's lots of places around uh, where we live here that are connected to our, our uh, agents for the food bank. And so it's, it might be helpful to know that if you know of, of other places that are uh, helping people with uh, food insecurity. Okay, thanks, Zach. And uh, the second thing, which he kind of segued for us, um, fasting helps us identify with the poor, the hungry and the poor. It gives us a sense of solidarity. There's um, a statement in your, one of the inserts in your um, worship folder, that's a statement from the Church of the Nazarene. It comes from our official operating document called the Manual of the Church of the Nazarene. And in there, there's a paragraph that's titled Responsibility to the Poor. And I won't read the whole thing, but I do want to read a segment of it. And it says, throughout the Bible and in the life and example of Jesus, God identifies and assists the poor, the oppressed, and those in society who cannot speak for themselves. In the same way, we too are called to identify with and to enter into solidarity with the poor and not simply offer charity from positions of comfort. So identifying with the poor, finding ways of, of understanding what their situation is like um, can be done through fasting because regularly going without food by choice can put us emotionally in touch with the millions of people who go, um, go without food not by their choice. When we deny our stomachs, it does something to our hearts. We might feel the compassion of God. We might begin to see the poor not as a stranger, but as a brother or a sister, just as Isaiah was calling the Jews of his time to do. And in addition, sadly, we don't have to be at rock bottom to be at risk economically. Today, all it takes to decimate our economic security is a sudden drop in our business or a job that gets automated or sent offshore or a retirement account that crashes with the stock market, or our home values might plummet, or some serious illness might strike us or our family members, or a storm that wreaks havoc on us, or maybe even another more deadly pandemic might hit us again. All of these lurking threats can take an emotional toll on all of us. Jeremy Bentham was a philosopher. He wrote back in 1802, when insecurity reaches a certain point, the fear of losing prevents us from enjoying what we possess already. The care of preserving condemns us to a thousand sad and painful precautions, which yet are always liable to fail of their own end. So when you think about security, security-wise, we might all be considered somewhat impoverished to one degree or another, which is why one reason why fasting with the poor ought to include all of us because we all might be at risk as of becoming uh, poor or uh, oppressed or hungry ourselves. The third thing that fasting with the poor does is it helps us to stand against evil and injustice at a social level, at a systemic level. Here's an example from our history about systemic injustice. After the American Revolution, there were a lot of war debts that the nation owed. And so they wrote bankruptcy laws that protected some people from having to pay um, their debts back so that that money can, then could be uh, given back to France and the other countries that helped finance the American Revolution. 
And these laws were written to shield the wealthy commercial donors and debtors, but the ordinary people, the broke farmers and the workers, they continued to face the threat of debtor's prison. The argument was that commercial debtors could not avoid economic risk because they engaged in market activity. But ordinary farmers and workers and tradesmen should order their affairs so that they didn't take on more debt than they could repay. If you were unable as an individual common person to pay your own debts, well, that you were viewed as being a moral failure because it was your moral duty to pay back your debts, right? But commercial non-payment was just kind of brushed off as a, counted as like the cost of doing business you know, in the society that they had. That's just one example. There's lots of others that we could think of. The idea though for fasting as a way of social transformation is to be a nonviolent way to protest against systemic injustice. Um, there's a, a New Testament scholar by the name of Scott McKnight and he wrote this, food joins humans to other humans because we share meals together. Whenever we give up food intentionally, we refrain from those relationships. When a group together protests by fasting, they are negating one relationship with the haves and they affirm another relationship with the have-nots. And since the structures of power always have sufficient food, fasting is not only refusing that relationship, but it's also protesting the structures that exist. Coincidentally, tomorrow marks the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech. Um, he spoke that from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in front of a crowd of about 250,000 people that showed up. Did you know, though, I didn't know this, but the actual name of that march was called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. It focused on economic discrimination and the lack of decent jobs for black Americans. Now, we don't, I, I haven't been able to find any record of fasting going on as part of that march and that protest, but fasting does highlight how peaceful protests and direct actions such as fasting can bring about social change. So, um, just do you want to kind of mention one condition or maybe one thing we need to reconsider or consider? That is that these solutions may not always be ideal. It may not solve all the problems. Uh, we know that there are lots of complicating issues dealing with poverty. Uh, it could be mental illness, homelessness, health problems, addictions. All of those are often combined together with Home with being hungry and being poor and oppressed. And so there's a domino effect and maybe um, some one, addressing one issue may also require addressing some uh, surrounding network of issues as well. But still it remains um, what Isaiah said, that creating or repairing these social safety nets along the lines of Isaiah 58 can go a long way towards reducing the stress and the strain that ails so many of us today. And the simple acceptance of our mutual vulnerability, the fact that we all need care throughout our lives, can be transformative in our lives with God and with our neighbors. If we can do that, the only thing that's left then for us to do is identify for whom we are going to sacrifice our time and our resources and our food. So if there were a homework assignment to take home today, maybe it's to ask ourselves, who are the people who are overworked? who are oppressed or discriminated against, who is ignored or abused in our society. 
When we extend love and some sort of tangible support for others, we are improving everyone's security, including our own. As Jesus said, when you fast, remember that fasting with the poor in the end is one of the most important forms of security that we can possess for ourselves and for our neighbors. Marva Dawn was the name of a theologian who focused much of her work and her writing on worship practices, including the topic of the Feast of Communion. She once wrote, Americans do not know how to, how to feast because they do not know how to fast, especially if we fast on behalf of those who don't have enough and we share our plenty with them, our feasting will be much more meaningful. So with these words working in our hearts and our minds, I invite us to turn toward the table where we can gather in communion with God's people all over the world. And we'll give thanks and we can celebrate God's sacrificial love for us.